Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Atlantic Wall is one of the biggest construction projects in history a line of formidable defences stretching from the Pyrenees to the Norwegian Arctic. But how effective was it? And why was Hitler so obsessed with bunkers? Well, to find out, I dug deep into the History Archive to pull out an episode between Dan and I. This is based on my research into the Atlantic Wall in Denmark stretching up to Norway, the hundreds of kilometres, thousands of bunkers and millions of mines. It's a topic I'm truly passionate about, and they even let me do a TV series on it called In Defence of the Reich, Hitler's Atlantic Wall, which you can catch now on History Hit. TV. But I know you're going to love this one. Here is Dan and I discussing Hitler's Atlantic Wall. Enjoy. James, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. Not a problem at all. Thanks for having me, Dan. So what have you been up to? You've been on the icy cold coast of Denmark looking at some remarkable bits of Atlantic Wall. Where did Hitler's Atlantic Wall go from and to? Is it really Pyrenees up to Norway? How true is that? Oh God, yeah, completely true. It went from the Norwegian Arctic down to the French border with Spain. We're talking 3,000 miles. Hitler's plan here was to have 15,000 bunkers, bunkers that overlooked every square inch of sand along that Atlantic coastline to make sure that the Allies just couldn't get through. Dictators love gigantic defensive building projects, don't they? Like it's, We'll talk <laughs> about whether it worked at the end, but it's like an astonishingly expensive... Was this Hitler's idea? What did his soldiers honestly think that this would stop, interdict an invasion of Western Europe? Hey, look, I'm going to say that this was Hitler's obsession, not just his idea. Albert Speer, the Nazi architect, would say that Hitler would sit there late at night sketching out designs for bunkers, and that these bunkers would then be sent off to Organisation Tote, who was the big organisation charged with making these giant concrete projects, and they wouldn't really change the designs because you didn't want to cross Hitler. So they kind of went up without any real strategic or military 
review, which left a number of Hitler's military advisors scratching their heads and wondering why they looked the way they did and why they were placed in the locations that they were, including Rommel at a later date, who once he had lost over in North Africa, the Desert Fox was uh, sent to the blustery, cold Atlantic Wall to try and get things into shape. And what he found was just a bit of a joke, really. He didn't understand why they were so stretched out. He didn't know why they were put in the places they were. They didn't make strategic sense. And so he tried to reorganize the lot. He created these Widerstands nests where they'd be clustered together along the Atlantic coast so that they could concentrate their force against any Allied attack and defend each other as well. So there was a force multiplication happening. And then he tried to create deeper defences so that if the Allies were to attack, then they'd be able to move armoured brigades around so that they could intercept any forthcoming attack. He didn't have enough time to do it properly, though. I mean, Rommel only really had seven months to try and turn this around. But all of this stems back to Hitler's obsession, pouring vast amounts of resources. We're talking millions of tons of concrete, of steel, millions of Reichmark. He even moved resources from the Eastern Front to get to his wall to try and make it a realistic possibility. I don't want to try and get too deep into the mind of Adolf Hitler. I think that that's always a worrying thing to do. But he had a kind of control over this, right? So by 1942, as things started to go wrong in the much broader war, after those initial successes in the Battle of France, turning over France in six weeks, Blitzkrieg, amazing successes, Operation Barbarossa in 41, 80 years ago, this year was Barbarossa, pushing the Soviets back, marching on the gates of Moscow. These things had gone so well, but by 42, things had really changed. Rommel, who had had so many successes also over in North Africa, his lines of intelligence, which allowed him to second guess every single Allied move, had been cut off. We're only finding that information out now. The fact that there was a mole inside the American defense attache's office in North Africa that was feeding Rommel this intelligence. Well, as soon as that was cut off, he started losing the war. He didn't realize that there was going to be forces at El Alamein. He was turned around. And to cut that long story short, Rommel is, of course, sent back. You're starting to see the Americans coming into the war after the Japanese attacks on Pearl Harbor, readying up that formidable strike that's going to come later in the war. And the Soviets, after moving all of their war resources across the country, recruiting, regrouping, retraining, are starting to push back. And Hitler is faced on two fronts here. And so it's here that we start to see him trying to invest more and more and more, more of his time, more of his energy, and more of those vital German resources into the formidable Atlantic Wall, one of the largest building projects in the history of the world, because he has to protect that flank from Allied invasion. It's very interesting, because Hitler, in his invasion of Western Europe and the East, Barbarossa, they make great fanfare of the fact that they have circumvented, penetrated jumped over fixed defences, that Blitzkrieg's all about mobility and how clumsy and slow-moving other forces are that depend on fixed defences. And yet then the Wehrmacht go and build the greatest set of fixed defences in the history of the world. Is that because deep down Hitler's still that corporal? He's still that trapped corporal on the Western Front, where, to be fair, 14 to 18, fixed defences do work quite effectively, just given where technology was at that time. 
Yeah, I think you're definitely right. I think he's probably drawing on his own experiences as best he can. But those in the know, like Gert von Rundstedt, who's commanding the Western forces there, he's saying that this isn't going to work. This is really just a mirage of a defence. In no way, shape or form are we any longer in an age of static defence. You're exactly right, Dan, in the fact that you need to have depth in defence so that it can absorb the initial attack and then push forward and repel it. And this just wasn't what the Atlantic Wall was designed for. You go down there, you go onto the beaches of places like Western Denmark, and you start to see how these were very much designed to try and repel the attack on the beaches. Rommel, once he started to survey these walls, said that actually, due to the fact that this is what we've gone for, this battle is going to be won and lost on the beaches of Europe. You look back and it really was quite a strategic mistake, wasn't it? The resources, you mentioned some of the figures there. I mean, the steel, the concrete. I mean, were there voices in Germany at the time saying, no, we need more tanks, we need more armoured divisions, we need to be mobile, we need to you know, respond rapidly to any landings. Was there much of a discussion or did Hitler just bulldoze this through? I think that there was dissenting discussion in the ranks, let's say, but that's not going to get back to Hitler. You disagree with Hitler and you are usually gone. So, you know, you carry on with those plans, you carry on with those defences. And... On paper, you know, they kind of make sense. You do really have to defend a lot of what is going on up in Norway. You need to defend the fact that the Third Reich need to have that vital supply of iron, of which Sweden and Norway are crucial to ensuring those resources get through and keep getting through for the vast German war machine. And so that investment then in the steel and the concrete kind of starts to make sense if it does work and does shore those things up. And then Denmark itself is a remarkable history. I live in Denmark and I've been living here for the last three years, jumping into that deep history of Denmark and the Second World War. It was really important for Germany because it was a breadbasket. I mean, they call it the cream front in Denmark because it was supplying all that milk, all that pork, all that butter, all that cream straight into Germany to feed that hungry workforce and those fighting forces. So you had to protect these things and you had to protect those supply routes. There's also another thing which I think is often overlooked in this historiography, and that's the psychological PR aspect of the Atlantic Wall. And you go back to that idea you said earlier on about the fact that dictators or perhaps authoritarian leaders love the idea of big infrastructure projects and some more recently, like big walls, not to call President Trump authoritarian in any way, shape or form, but they have a certain PR element to them. And this was so important during this time. I mean, it fed into the morale of the troops and the morale of the German people, who earlier on had been deliberately kept out of the war. You hadn't recruited women earlier on. You tried to allow the Germans to carry on a relatively normal life. This wasn't going to affect them. Germany was going to win pretty easily. But by 1942-43, the German population had been dragged into this, even more people brought into the military, and many of which were going to be sent up to that formidable Atlantic wall that was going to protect them. Goebbels used this all the time, use it in propaganda all the time. And you go on the beaches and you see these gigantic structures. I mean, some were massive command posts, and they just line as far as the eye can see, Dan, like an endless march up the coast and down the coast. 
But once you actually got there and you started to look inside them as a German soldier, you saw that they really just hadn't been completely finished and they never were finished. Hitler wanted 15,000. I mean, they didn't even really reach a third of that. It was useful as PR, not useful as a military defense, sadly. Well, not sadly. Uh, yeah. Have you had an existential crisis while taking out recycling? Do you look at your shopping and wonder if you should be growing it yourself? And why is everyone banging on about saving the bees? If so, then don't worry because you are not alone. I've been there too. I'm Jimmy Doherty and on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm, I sit down with well-known faces and some of the smartest green minds to learn how they try and sometimes fail to be kinder to the planet and live closer to nature. Listen and subscribe to On Jimmy's Farm Now, wherever you get your podcasts, a new podcast from History Hit. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What did the Allies make of it? Did they see through it? Did they see it's kind of like a Potemkin village nature or were they very worried about making an opposed landing against it? I think that there's one element that did work well. And that was this idea of creating these port citadels, these bastions that would line the Atlantic coast. So if you're looking at a Calais or you're looking at an Ostend or you're looking at an Esbia in Denmark, then what you're seeing is the fact that they'd created more defensive buildings than there were buildings at these ports. They were formidable, and you really didn't want to take one of those head on. And we'd already been bruised in places like Dieppe when we tried to take on ports head on. I mean, look at the casualties there. It became clear that they were well defended, and you really couldn't move through and take on those defences. So. It's here that Allied planners and offensive planners started to see that we need to come up with an alternative. We need to define those gaps in the armour. Now, Hitler knew this, and that's why you had his issuing of Directive 40. And I can read you what that stated. It said that in the days to come, the coast of Europe will be seriously exposed to the dangers of enemy landing. Disposition of forces and improvements of fortifications are to be made so that the main defensive effort lies in those coastal sectors that are the most probable sites for enemy landing. 
those remaining coastal sectors that are vulnerable to coup de main or even small units must be protected by means of a strong point type of defense. And so it's here that you started to see the spreading of the Atlantic Wall, that issuing of the order for 15,000 bunkers. And I think in some ways, the Allies were taken in by this. When you do see the scale of the building projects that are going on, it's hard not to be worried about what your forces are going to face. But we really did outthink the Axis powers. We outthought the Third Reich because we had our Mulberry Harbours. And they were ingenious. The fact that we could have these off the coast of any point, park up our big ships, make those landings and provide a sustained invasion without having to go to one of those port citadels, those bastions, without having to take an Ostend or a Calais or an Esbia. And actually, when it came to trying to take those later on in the war, those were some of our fiercest battles. They were so well defended, Dan. You've walked huge chunks of the Atlantic Wall for this project on history and for other projects. What are they like today, a lot of these? Where's the best stretches that remain, would you say? People can go and get a sense of the scale of this architectural engineering. It's like stepping back into history. You have so many of them so well preserved. You take a walk down onto the beaches near places like Esbia in Denmark, and it gives you a feel of what it would have been like to have been stationed there in a harsh Danish winter. You've got the salt and the sand kicking up with a fierce wind like shards into your face. But you see the white sand just spreading on for miles. It's got this light dusting on the surface, but underneath it's rock hard like concrete. It would have been perfect for an invasion. And then it's kind of framed by these towering dunes that come from the back. And then perched on those dunes are these bunkers. And I went up there with our producer, Mark, who you know well, and the great Danish war historian, Rune Egberg. And he took us into these bunkers. And you go inside, and you can go inside. They're just there. They're just open. You can walk in. There's a few that are still on a live Danish firing range. And we couldn't film on those because we didn't want it to be too realistic as the shots were going over. But you can go inside so many of them there. And there's the original paintwork, believe it or not. It's faded, but you can see the original numbering and lettering on the inside. You've got the pipes. You've got pretty much everything that's in there, apart from the fact it's filled up with sand up to your waist. So you have to crawl and, <laughs> and sneak through at points. But as you stand there and you look through the machine gun windows and you look through the posts where those vast artillery would have put into place, and the only way I can really describe it is like standing on the deck of a giant battleship with the gun there looking out to sea. And you can just think for a second what it would have been like for a German soldier standing there in the depths of winter waiting for that Allied invasion to come in. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to have been there, Dan, but I probably would have preferred to have been there than the Eastern Front. Oh, God, yeah, tough choice, I mean. Although you mentioned battleships, big guns. Well, you should have built more of. You should have listened to Scheer, built some more Tirpitzes and Bismarcks. Stopped an invasion fleet in the middle of the channel once they put got on land. It's the lesson. So you thought you looked at British coastal fortification in the 19th century and realised what a waste of money they were. Let's talk about when the Allies actually landed on D-Day. How effective was the Atlantic Wall in stopping them, James? As effective as it could be, which wasn't very effective. 
I'm hastened to say it was a complete failure because it did the best job that it could given the situation. And there are formidable accounts of these machine gun posts taking out vast swathes of Allied forces, thousands, until they were overrun. But they were strategically flawed from the start. And also, I mean, the Allies had put together such a vast, incredible preponderance of power to take that coast that really, do you think that anything was going to stop that moving through? And then there's a catalogue of errors. You know, that depth of defence that Rommel had tried to put in place just ends up getting cut off. You have the vast amounts of air power that come in as well. The communication lines that are cut. The special operations executives that had gone in there prior to the invasion and they'd cut the rail links, they'd shut off the roads, they'd cut the commands and the radio controls. All of this had happened at the same time. So the generals who are in charge of this start becoming blind and deaf unable to coordinate their attacks, and all of this allows the Allies to move through. Not easily, but overall successfully. And I guess it's important to think that the real decisive fighting for Normandy was in the days and weeks after that, and the appalling battles of Normandy in which casualty rates were similar to those of some of the big First World War battles. And actually, that's when the Allies had their toehold. They'd landed. So you're I guess for future despots who want to protect their empires, you either got to interdict the fleet at sea or you let them land and then crush them on land, right? So trying to stop them in the shallows hasn't really worked. Yeah, I think static defence doesn't seem to work. Also, don't invade Russia and get caught up in the winter. I think that's probably the lesson. Evergreen, evergreen advice. For sure, man. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for making this show for history. Thank you for making the podcast. Uh, I know you've got lots of plans coming up, but anything you can tell us about? Yes, we now have the New Look History Hit Warfare podcast, which I present on Spotify, Apple Music and Acast. In fact, wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, twice a week, I team up with historians, experts and the veterans who served to reveal astonishing new histories of ferocious global conflict. We stretch from the Seven Years' War, through the World Wars, the Cold War, and into the War on Terror, showing how warfare continues to shape our world. And to give you a bit of a taster, we've got an episode coming up for Anzac Day with 97-year-old World War II veteran Jim Burrows. Now, Jim was in the Australian military, and he spent 10 months in occupied Japanese territory as a formidable coast watcher. And what he has to say about the Pacific campaign is fascinating. So do check out the History Hit Warfare podcast. And then we have lots more Danish history coming up. In a time of COVID and lockdown, it just so happens that a History Hit producer, Mark, and a History Hit presenter, me, are in Denmark. So we're going to make the most of it. We're going to bring you Viking history. We're going to bring you lost hidden murder stories around bog men in Denmark. We've got all of it. So uh, yeah, keep your eyes and ears open. Luckily, we lock you down in a place where there's a ton of history. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on the show, James. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.